Corinthians chapter 8. We will glorify the Lord of Lord, for he is Lord of heaven, Lord of earth. He is Lord of all who live. He is Lord above the universe. All praise to him we give. The Apostle Paul is having to deal with a particular subject matter that has become a problem for the Corinthian believers. And as we have seen in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has emphasized the solidarity of Yahweh as the one true God. He is the only God. He is the God of gods, and he is God and Lord over all. This particular matter has to deal with the eating of meats or foods in particular. It could be very generalized. It didn't have to be meat, but oftentimes it was concerning meat. But food, food that has been offered to idols. What do Christians do with this? And as we've seen, as we've been hammering out chapter 8, there were Christians in the church at Corinth that, like today, struggled with recognizing the absolute power of the gospel. And not just absolute power in a Calvinistic way, as we like to oftentimes talk about, right? Where God is sovereign over the heart, sovereign over salvation. Um, We know from the Old Testament, the prophets will declare, salvation is of the Lord. The psalmist will say that he has made us willing in the day of his power. So when God works salvifically upon an individual, we understand that he is God of our hearts, he is God of our minds, He is Lord over all of us. And so we are not surprised then that he is able to work in us a regenerating effect by which we are able to fall before him and declare him our Savior, our God, and our Lord. So that's not the only way in which we understand the sovereignty of God, the lordship of God over all things. We also have to talk about the tangible things that are around us. Those things that exist in an experiential way. Things that we can, can, can recognize and experience with senses. Sight and smell and feel and sound and all of those things. Do any of these things, can any of these things be made properties of another God? Maybe some of us have grown up in Christian circles where that seemed to be the idea. It seemed like as I grew up and as I got older, year by year, more things became the property of the devil. And so because of that, there were things that we couldn't do as Christians, things we had to avoid as Christians. We had to restructure ourselves and, uh, and reinvent the Christian will, so to speak, because as technology increases, as things increased, so did the, uh, the sovereignty of the devil over the things of this age. Now, while it is true that the devil is called the god of this world, 
we have to understand that it's really a formality, isn't it? Because in the end, we know from the scriptures that the devil is God's devil. And the things that the devil tries to lay claim on, those are God's things. And, and the devil has no power, he has no authority, but what God gives to him for a time and season. And so even today, we struggle in the church as to what is owned by other gods. The last couple of weeks, our sermon title has been a question. Is the devil in my food? Does the devil own food? Does the devil own places? Does the devil own things? This is the, the, the question that has been laid out for us that Paul is addressing. And I hope that we've been able to see up to this point that the answer to this is no, the devil owns nothing but what God allows him to have authority over for a time and a season. Even you, dear Christian, the devil has no claim on you apart from what God may permit him to touch you with. We think of Job, that servant that God exalted and praised before the sons of God as they came into the council in the heavenly place. And he asked the devil, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil says, yeah, well, whatever. Job is only doing what Job does because you won't let me touch him. You know, if you're going to protect him and keep him safe, then of course, you know, anytime anyone gets something from you, God, it's going to make them uh, uh, want to come to you, right? I and mean, that's the whole premise of the social gospel, right? Prosperity gospel. Um, God wants you to have things, be things, do things. And so as long as you're happy and healthy and wise and, uh, you know, who's not going to praise Yahweh? And of course, we know how that all went down and God gives to him progressive authority and power over not only the life of Job, not only the possessions of Job, but eventually the very person of Job is allowed to be touched by the working of the devil. And so ultimately what we have to recognize is that the devil does not own anything of himself. It's kind of like the government with money. The government doesn't have its own money. It has your money. And it might print paper with green ink on it, but ultimately, they can't control that either, do they? Right? So the government says it has money, but it doesn't. And in this way, the devil might pretend to have power over a believer, but he doesn't. And he doesn't own things of this world. And so the answer was no, dear Corinthian church, the devil is not in your food. Now, we'll have another conversation that brings this full circle once we get to the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10. But we'll wait for that time when it happens. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the end of chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to see something here that Paul is now going to begin to, to dissect and to lay out in parts and pieces for the Corinthian church to be able to observe and see. And having discussed that, um, that food uh, doesn't belong to the devil because uh, or, or to idols in particular, um, the reason being is that there really are no other gods as compared to Yahweh. And in particular, the idols that represent these deities themselves have no real existence. And we worked through um, Psalm 
Last week, we saw Isaiah, we looked at Jeremiah, and I'll bring those references up here again in just a little bit, where the, the prophets, on behalf of God, remind Israel how stupid that person is who is going to cut down a tree and from this tree take a third of it and start a fire to warm himself with. And then he's going to take another third of it and he's going to build himself a house to live in. And then the last third he says, what am I going to do with this third? Oh, I'm going to make myself a god. And so he builds a fire to warm himself to eat by. He takes some of this wood to, uh, to build a place of living. And then he says, the last part, I guess I'll make a god and that will cover all my bases. And the prophets reminded Israel how stupid is the person who believes that he can make his own salvation. Now, I know we're modern and we're, we're, we're advanced and evolved, right, as a human race. So we don't, we don't set up and make wood idols and overlay it with gold and silver so much anymore. But we're no different. We're no different. We're still idolaters, right? We still think we can make our own salvation. And while it may not be in a piece of wood, a tree that we've carved into our liking, there are, there are a plethora of many things available to us to make idols out of. And so the situation hasn't changed. The problem hasn't been fixed. As depraved beings, as fallen creatures, we are idolaters. And so Paul addresses this. They're nothing, so we don't have to worry about them. Therefore, the food that's offered to them, we don't have to be fearful of. They don't live in it. They don't, they don't affect it. They can't bless it or curse it. It's, it's, the idol has no real existence. And so we have to understand that there's only one. For us, there's one God. And he is the Lord over all of them. But as we look at our text this morning, beginning in verse 7, Paul is going to have to recognize something. So would you look down with me, please, at verse 7. Let's read this together. You follow along as I read. In spite of all this teaching, Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. Now, some translations, I think, kind of change this a bit. And I think the old King James says, even to this hour, some eat meats offered to idols as really offered unto idols. Their conscience then is being defiled because it's weak. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be emboldened? That's the word. Encouraged. Prodded if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person ends up being destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin ultimately against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... 
I will never eat meat. Now, I don't know about you, that, that's going to be a really hard thing to give up as a Gentile Christian. Paul says, if it makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The sermon this morning is titled, Christian Liberty, an Expression of Faith. Christian Liberty, an Expression of Faith. We're going to start at verse 7. And he's recognizing that even though he's instructed them the things that he has instructed them on in verses 1 through 6, there are, however, some who are not going to possess this knowledge. We have to understand that the word possess is not simply an intellectual awareness, okay? But it is a full, confident assent to the reality. That's a different thing altogether. We know this even within ourselves. There's, there's information, biblical, theological, gospel information that we know intellectually that we struggle with affirming by faith. This is what Paul is speaking to. There are some who do not possess as in this is theirs for the keeping. They have not dressed themselves with this. They have not put this on. They have not actually lived in full confidence in this reality. They don't possess this knowledge. Now, they, they know the idol is nothing or they wouldn't be a believer. They'd still be a pagan. So they have the head knowledge. What they do not possess is the faith confidence. Now I know that we've heard teaching throughout the years on the strong Christian and the weak Christian. And I, I don't even know if I'm going to put it in, in that kind of a, pers- a perspective for us. I would rather speak to the, to the confident and the insecure Christian. So if you'll permit me, I'm going to use that term, those terms. The secure or the confident and the insecure. Because the truth is, the individual who is considered weak in conscience is not necessarily a weak in faith Christian as far as believing the basic tenets of the gospel. They might go to their death confessing the gospel. That's no weakness, my friend. There are some modern Christians who have been confessing Christians for 30 years who would have a hard time going to the stake as a martyr in full confidence. Sometimes we can't even go to our deathbed with full confidence. So when we think of weakness, we're going to think of someone who is um, not able to fully grasp the details of the gospel. And that's, that's not it. Their weakness is in the confidence that the gospel overpowers all things. Paul will tell us in the book of Romans that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of what? It's the power of God. Is there any weakness in the power of God, church? There's nothing my God cannot do. Right? 
Moses would ask, is the hand of the Lord waxed short? Rhetorical question, of course. And what's the answer? No. So there's nothing of weakness found in the power of God. And so what we have here is the confidence of a particular believer in possessing with confidence and surety and security the reality that the power of the gospel is greater in them than the power that is in the world. Now you have to give them a little bit of a break here because we probably have never been saved out of a paganism where we were overcome by spirit powers. We may have never felt the captivity of being under the power of an evil spirit. We may have never dabbled in the occult. We've never been a Satan worshiper. We're going to find out that idol worshipers here in Corinth were actually demon worshipers in chapter 10. They were Satan worshipers. And so what you have to understand is the reason why they are still questioning the validity of eating things offered to idols is because in their past, they have seen some very real and powerful things come out of the worship of those objects. And they've experienced evil forces. They've experienced the power of the devil. They've understood the blindness of darkness more so than probably some of us in a modern culture can say we've experienced. And so they are still wondering They're still skeptical. Is this gospel really overcoming the paganism from which I have been saved out of? This opening statement of verse 7 is now addressing a knowledge on the matter of idols from the opposite end of the debate. Verses 1 through 6, Paul is affirming what the confident believer believes which is, I can do what I want with anything that's offered to an idol because an idol has zero existence. It has no power bearing on me as a god. Okay. But what about the other side? The side that I just mentioned, those who have actually really experienced a darkness coming out of a pagan worship of idols. And that's what Paul's now going to have to address. Remember, Paul acknowledges that all of us possess knowledge. Verse 1. In verses 4 through 6, dealt with a knowledge that understood idols that have no real existence. And we looked at Psalm 115. We looked at Isaiah 44. We looked at Jeremiah 10. How stupid is the one who cuts down a tree and makes his God out of it. All these references have argued the inanimate nature of idols. It's interesting, I didn't mention this last week, but I I will now. It's interesting that when pagans of ancient times made a wood idol and they overlaid it with copper and gold and silver and metal or whatever they did, whatever that idol was, they would have to do an initial rite, some type of of a worshipful rite, in order, in their estimation, to open the nostrils of that object to allow the spirit life to invade and to take residence. 
So they knew they were, they were making something that had nothing to it, no existence, no life. But in their deception and darkness, they would perform a ritual whereby they believed they had opened the pores within the confines of nostril and mouth and ears and eyes, which enabled the spirit powers to come into the object and to be able to animate their worship of that object. However, here in verse 7, there appears to be a knowledge situation where many who had sacrificed to these idols did not share the confidence that Paul unpacked in verses 4 through 6. These weak, or as we're going to call them, these insecure Christians were still not convinced that an idol had no real existence. It appears that either they weren't so sure if eating such food would expose them to the defilements of idolatry, since the food, in their estimation, belonged to those gods, or perhaps they felt that since these foods were dedicated to these gods, that there was a religious connotation to these things, that by eating the food and eating of these things, would actually make them participants once again of their old pagan idolatry. And this is where Paul has to begin to explain that there is no inherent evil in the reality of food. He had to explain to them the inherent innocence of food and to know that there's nothing wrong with eating a particular food or not eating a particular food. And certainly we know that the food cannot be affected by something that does not exist. So therefore, there is no harm or blessing or socializing with these gods by eating something that has been offered to them. You can look down to verse 8, and he tells the Corinthians, Food will not commend us to God. Food will not commend us to God. This is something that Peter had to be taught. Remember his dream he had in the upper room? That sheet comes down four corners, angels bring it down, they open it up, and on there's all types of unclean foods. And I just wish I could have seen the face of Peter in that moment, recoiling in horror as the divine messengers of God give to him a gift from God. And it's all blasphemous stuff. Peter's response is, no, Lord, I cannot eat this. This is common. And God retorts, do not call common what I have blessed. We all know what Peter's face would have been the first time he ate that bacon, right? Those eyes roll back. And he just, mm, mm, mm. He got the grease going down the corner of his mouth. Where's the bacon? Give me more bacon, right? So we know that when he first tasted, he saw that the Lord was good when he had that bacon. But he had to learn that lesson. There's nothing inherently wrong with eating any kind of food. Food will not commend us to God, and we are no worse off if we do not eat. But just remember, we're no better off if we do. 
Food is food. He has already told us that food has been made for the stomach and the stomach was made for food. The food goes in, the food is going to be digested and it's going to be expelled. We receive a temporary nourishment and the cycle continues. That's what food is made for. When God created the things that we eat, he created them in the same goodness that he created mankind. And so when he tells Noah and his sons, they come up the ark, listen, everything that walks on the earth, every creeping thing, every beast of the field, right? Every juicy steak, every, 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 every plush fruit, every big mushroom, everything is now given to you to eat, partake, eat of it. And so there is nothing inherently evil about eating particular foods or not eating particular foods. And so the, the apostle makes this very clear to them as he begins to explain to them how they need to handle the situation from both perspectives. Let me just remind you that in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Jesus also has to speak to this idea that food does not contaminate. It's not what goes in to the mouth of a man and into his belly that defiles him, but it's what comes out of his heart that defiles him. That's where all the evil comes from. The evil comes out. The evil doesn't go in as such by eating mere food. But we look at back to verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge. They're not confident in it. They don't, they don't see it in the same light. And their conscience being weak is defiled by the thought of eating meats or foods offered to these gods. This statement at the end of verse 7 seems to me to be the pivot point of this whole teaching of chapter 8. So if you want to know where's the crux of the matter here, it's going to be, I think, verse 7, the end of verse 7. So I don't know if you highlight, underline, whatever, circle, mark, check mark, put a star, whatever. Verse 7 is going to play pivotal moment and what Paul is now going to explain to them about the eating of foods that are designated or donated to false gods. It is the crucial bit of understanding that will inform every point of contention on the matter of Christian liberty within the Christian faith. So verse 7 is going to be big. So if you sense that what's about to follow, what comes next, is going to be a pretty big deal, then you sense, you sense right. It's going to be a big, big thing for us to hear now and take in what the Apostle Paul is going to teach us. And by the way, I hope today that you will be informed and you will have information given to you that will re-examine and rearrange what you believe about Christian liberty. Because we're not taught this primarily within this conversation of Christian liberty. There appears to be a problem within the church where some Christians were struggling with their past idolatry. And they were even at the present time eating meat, even though it had been offered to idols. And they were, they were struggling in conscience because they believed that perhaps it was still spiritually contaminated. 
And if that's the case, then it's also contaminating their faith, their security, their assurance, their confidence in the gospel by partaking of this particular practice. And so they were being tempted, perhaps even encouraged, to abstain from the eating of any kind of food that would have given any kind of pagan connotation. In this case, the word defiled means to soil or to stain. Their conscience being insecure is stained. It's soiled. And if we're not careful, Paul's argument is, they're going to be ruined by this. Their conscience was being spiritually polluted, not actually, but experientially. They were living in a frail confidence of faith whereby they were to believe that because there is one God and only one true God for them, none of these idols actually had power or consequence for them. And this brings us to the consideration of the rest of our text this morning. And really, it is a consideration to a matter that modern Christianity has much to say about, and that is the matter of Christian liberty. What do we do when we have those who are insecure in faith and those who are secure in faith? When we talk about Christian liberty, what we are really referring to is what a Christian can and cannot do. What a Christian can and cannot do. Or maybe we can put it like this. What a Christian should and should not do. Because really, can is not the issue. We already know they can. Maybe we should put this in the confines of should a Christian do something. I'm going to argue points for clarification this morning that may not sit well with some that will listen to this. But I'm hoping to show you that by the time we are done here, from what we find in the text, that they will be, in fact, accurate points. The basis for determination on the matter of what a Christian should and should not do cannot be a couple things. And I want to address these right off because I think that a lot of times the conversation of Christian liberty is actually determined by these particular considerations or determinations. Number one, the matter of what a Christian should and should not do is not, is not a matter of another person's personal standard or point of view. Did you hear me? The standard is not based on a person's personal standard or point of view. It cannot be a point of view because Paul says we all have knowledge on the issues, right? And in having knowledge of particular issues, guess what? We do not always end on the same side. At this point... A Christian is going to believe what they believe, hopefully, because they have engaged the Scriptures. 
Listen, church, it does no good to call yourself a Bible-believing Christian if what you believe does not come from the Bible. If I were to ask you, why do you believe this particular thing? You say, well, I don't know. I just, I just, like, it's just always kind of what I believe. Uh, wrong answer for me. Then I don't want you arguing your theological point and position. Because you will have no basis or standing ground or objective truth that I'm going to be interested in listening to as a Christian. Everything that you believe, every position that you hold, every view that you take theologically must come from the Scripture. Now, you may, not, you may misunderstand that Scripture, but be able to expound it at least. Be able to explain what you think it's meaning for you and why you're going to hold the position that you do. The, the modern church suffers today. The modern church suffers today from only being creedal and confessional. And they are failing to be biblical. And, and case in point, whenever I, as, as, a, as, a, as a general adherent to the 1689 Confession, the Baptist London Confession, whenever I bring up a point from the Confession and I disagree with it, with another brother who holds very strongly to the confession, you would think that I violated the Bible, even though I'm saying the Bible doesn't say this. If you want to say that's the confessional position, that's fine. But if it's, if it's a secondary issue, don't make it primary. I've been kicked off of reformed confessional sites and pages because I will not agree to not disagree with a confession. That's a problem. And so a point of view can be misunderstood. A point of view can be wrongly discerning. It can be an error with its interpretation. But let me say this about personal standard. I cannot live my life in full faith in the gospel, with full confidence in Christ my Savior, while I am being confined in my life and faith and practice being dictated by your personal standard. If you think it's a standard that all Christians should hold, then remove the personal from it and argue biblical standard. Are you with me? Personal standard is not a determining factor on what I do and do not do. Especially when these personal standards are made as protections for that individual that may not have a clear biblical explanation, but only a disciplining expression of faith. In other words, if I'm a glutton with food and I can't control my eating of food when there's a lot of food in front of me, I may as a Christian not eat at the Chinese buffet. Guess what? That's not a biblical standard for the whole church here at Grace to abide by. That's a personal standard. Some of you may have been saved out of a life of drunkenness and debauchery. 
And you might have put for yourself a personal standard prohibiting you from drinking alcoholic beverages. And I commend you for that. And I will probably say you should do that. If you cannot live in self-control, you cannot live in faith unto God in that way, if it's going to be something you're going to consume the flesh upon, then yes, put that as a personal standard in your life. I, I bless you for that. But do not make my life have to be lived by that standard. If I can live by drinking an alcoholic beverage to the glory of God in full faith. A personal standard, a private interpretation, a, a, a personal point of view, these cannot be, these cannot be determining factors in what other Christians should and should not do with their life. I grew up in circles where it was called a sin for women to wear pants. One verse in the Bible they drew this from, and this was a this was a creedal confessional position. One verse in the Old Testament. But you can't guess what it is. A man should not wear that which pertains, or a woman should not wear that which pertains to a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. That was that was their verse. So when I of course I, you can assume I was rebellious. Christian, right? I wasn't a very good confessional Christian in those circles. I push back and say, okay, so explain to me, what is a, what is a woman's garment? What is a man's garment? Well, you know, throughout history, men have worn legged garments. So Jesus wore blue jeans? Well, well, right, all of a sudden now we have to now we have to start compromising. Well, culture. Oh, culture's not part of this. Oh, now we have to, you know, our standards uh, as a Christian are based on culture. No, no, not that. It's, you know, not, it just goes a big rabbit hole. You get lost in the underground, right? But I, my favorite one was, all right, so what makes a pair of pants a man's garment that a woman cannot, that, that, so that a woman cannot wear them? And the answer was, because they have a zipper in the front. Really? Okay. So there's your standard for why pants on women is a sin. My question, of course, was, what if it zips up the side? Well, 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 what if she has a pair of blue jeans and they zip up the side? What, what then? Or what if she has buttons in the back? I mean, what, what happens if, if the, the lace-up portion of her pants is somewhere else in the front? Well, it goes back to the premise that, you know, historically men have worn legging garments. That, my friend, is a personal standard, one that is stupid and ridiculous, has no bearing on your place before God. But if you want to hold to it, that's fine. But it's a personal standard, and it cannot be judgment for good pleasure and justification in the sight of God. They would actually tell me that they believed that it was less pleasing for a woman before God if she wore a pair of pants. Blasphemy! Don't call yourself an evangelical if that's the position you hold to because your justification before God is really based on what you do. You see this? These can never be, never be determining factors for why another Christian does or does not do something. And this is something that Paul actually is going to insist upon in his teachings 
Here in chapter 8 through chapter 10, Paul will not force a believer who is secure in the gospel's liberation power to submit himself or herself to the restrictive demands of an insecure believer simply because it will offend the senses of the insecure. If you don't believe me, then all you got to do is take a look at the end of chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. He asks this question, and I can see his face distorted in confusion and sarcasm. He's going to say, I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Many a Christian woman was very thankful for a pair of pants during January in northern Wisconsin. Right? So why should she be condemned? Because of some weird, arbitrary, misinterpreted text and scripture and idea. But let me also say this. There is a second basis of determination that should never be used in the subject matter of Christian liberty. And I say it should never be used as a forced position. Now, I think at times it should be used as a willing position by the secure. Okay? So my argument isn't that this should never happen. That's not my argument. My argument is that this should never be the basis upon which the secure do and don't do something. But I think there are times when they should willingly do these on their own. I'll explain that in just a moment, but here's the second. The determining, the, the determining factor of what a mature Christian or a confident Christian um, does and does not do should not be a matter of possibility that the insecure may sin with what the secure is doing in confident faith. Let me say that again. This should never be a matter of possibility that the insecure may sin with what the secure is doing in confident faith. This was probably the primary argument in circles that I came from years past. Well, you may tempt a weaker brother, that's what they call them, a weaker brother to take that thing and go sin with it. So now we are being called to anticipate. So when you come over to my house, I'm going to stare at you for a very, very long time. I'm going to consider what I know of you. I'm going to pair that with your personality, with your attitude, with your practices, with your spiritual maturity. I'm going to do my best to anticipate whatever I'm going to put up before you as being the means by which you're going to run away from my house and go sin with. Right? I mean, to what end are we supposed to anticipate? Now, admittedly, this is a tough one. As I mentioned, there are circles of Christian faith that 
would require the confident to be restricted in their liberty and freedom and, and faith on account that there's a possibility that someone who is not in full confidence like they are may be tempted to sin with that liberty that they are enjoying and that they are enjoying to the glory of God and that they are enjoying in full faith confidence. Now, again, I think that this one may actually have application in some situations. Listen, if you are, if you are used by God to lead a non-believer into the faith and you have taken them in and begin to disciple them and you know there are things they live their life in with abandon and they have no present control or understanding or, or they do not see the, the, the necessity of getting this under control as of yet. There might be those things that you might say, you know what, we're not going to put those out in front of them today. They're coming over for dinner. They're coming over for games and fellowship or whatever. We're just not going to put those things out in front of them. And I think that that's applicable. So that's why I said I don't think this should never happen, but I think it should be willingly done by the confident for this reason. If they do it, what is it evidence? that they are knowing as they ought to know. And how ought they to know? In love. Because what builds up faith? Your knowledge? Your confidence that you can drink and eat and smoke and do whatever it is you're going to do in front of them tonight? Is that what's going to build them up? No, love builds up. And you have a genuine interest in this brother or sister whom Christ died for. Listen to that. He died for them. And are you going to flaunt your liberties in his face or her face? To prove what point? Exactly. Are you with me? So there's a situation where love might actually win out. And it may be necessary for that secure believer to extend a deeper expression of love to that insecure by not partaking of a thing that they would potentially abuse unto sin. And we are aware of that. It's a weakness for them. It's an insecurity for them. And this is something that, as secure believers, we need to be especially sensitive to. But the fact that there is the possibility that another person may sin with something that is at liberty to be partaken of is not the standard that Paul is going to argue in our text. But Pastor Adam, what about verse 9? Oh, let's go look at verse 9. It's kind of like the Arminian yelling at the Calvinist. What about John 3.16? All right, here's our John 3.16. Let's look at it. But take care that this right of yours, he's speaking to the secure believer here, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The first thing to note is that Paul explains that the matter of eating food offered to idols is a right for a Christian to do. I think this is a very interesting word to use in translation. The, the, the idea is free, a free choice 
okay? Meaning that you are, you are at liberty to do or not to do is the sense. But I love the word right. As, as, as a participant with the one true God, it's your right to defile the false God. It's your right. You want to go eat his food? It's your right. What's he going to do, stop you? He, he's got nothing. He, he doesn't exist. And so it's your right as, as one who is in full faith to the one true God to partake of everything the one true God has given you for his glory and for your good pleasure. Yes, I said it. God is not a killjoy. He wants you to find pleasure in what he's given you. He is a good father that way. Did you know that? He is a good and loving father. Do not ever think that he is not pleased to bring you good pleasure. He will. He does. He can. And so what we find here is that it is the right of a Christian to take what God has given to us and to take it back from that which had been designated and donated and reverenced to something that does not exist. What, what would give God greater glory, do you suppose? You rejecting to partake of something that he created for you and for good because you believe that it is no longer good and has been contaminated by something that doesn't exist. It doesn't make sense, does it? The greater glory is that God sees those whom he has redeemed take what is redeemable and lifting it up to him as redeemed and finding joy in that, finding delight in a God who redeems and buys back and sets free and saves. Secondly, the word stumbling block carries the sense of stubbing a toe. Okay? Stubbing a toe. Take care that this right of yours, this free choice of yours to take what was offered to idols or not take it, be careful that that right does not become a toe stubbing. And in this case, it's a reference of a stubbing of one's faith against something that does nothing to carry any bearing upon God's commendation or condemnation of an individual. If this is open and free and a right of a believer, then do not make this something that becomes essentially a sin for them. A faith stubborn, so to speak. Verses 10 through 12 are going to go on. We're not going to spend much time here, but they're going to go on to unload what Paul means by this. But what we're going to do is we're going to notice that in verse 10, verse 10 shows us a couple things here. First of all, verse 10 begins to show us a scenario that he wants the church to be aware of. You see, someone comes in, they see the confident one, the one who has full faith in the gospel and in his knowledge, and of his power. They see that one eating food that's been offered to idols. But they're not just eating the food. Where are they eating the food, does it say? In the temple. So this person cannot have any more confidence in faith than this. 
He's going to walk right into that God's house. He's going to open his refrigerator and he's going to devour his food as a non-believing element of that God's house. Now imagine if you're at home, all of a sudden your door opens up and the front door opens and in comes a complete stranger. They walk right into your house, wave at you, walk to your refrigerator, open it up, go to your cabinet, pull out some plates and bowls, throw some slop on there from your refrigerator leftovers, goes into your microwave, begins to warm it up, starts going through your drawers. Where's the forks? Where's the spoons? Oh, I found them. Right? Grabs a drink, opens your, 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 your favorite bottle of wine that you've been saving for your anniversary, right? They just go over there, open that up there, and, gloop, 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 and they sit down with your, your roast beef and your prized bottle of wine. They sit down with their feet on their chair and they eat and they drink, completely ignoring you, not recognizing you. After they're done, they get up, they burp, they wipe their hands on your white linen tablecloth and walk out the door. What would you think to that? Yeah, a little, a little shocking, right? That was very bold of you to do something like that, dear stranger. Well, this is what Paul's picturing here as a scenario. You cannot be any stronger in faith at this point than what he just pictured in verse 10. There is nothing more telling than eating food offered to an idol in a very common manner while doing it at the foot of that idol's altar. Nothing about this, notice, is condemned by the apostle. They're not being condemned for doing this. In fact, he called it a right. It's the right to go in and defile the worship of that non-existing idol to take and redeem what God had given to us as a good creator and good father. The compulsion that's going to come from this is going to be strong, Paul's going to acknowledge in just a moment. There's no thought to the place, the object, or the act of dedication for this strong, confident believer. They simply walk into the temple, lays himself out, eats, devours, and leaves, and has enjoyed himself in the process. That's the scenario. But verse 10 also paints a problem. Here's the problem. Someone saw them do that. Right? Someone has seen them do this. This someone who is observing the scenario is going to be the one who is insecure or weak in his faith confidence. And he's the one who understands or suspects or hasn't quite shaken the idea that the food and the temple are spiritually significant that there is a view of association and connotation that's connected with these particular things that they watched happen and where it took place. They sit back for a moment and they say, wow, wow, that's powerful. And I think what Paul's going to do is he's going to suspect that the strong, confident faith of this individual is actually going to influence the weak, to be bold in faith. They're going to see that happen, watch you walk out, and they're going to be like, this, that's incredible. He didn't even blink an eye. He had no concerns whatsoever. There was no fear. There was only redemption and security and joy and delight and satisfaction in what he just did and walking in the mouth of this God and eating from his, taking from his throat the very food that belonged to him. They become emboldened. 
But next time they see you do it, you wave at them. And maybe you wave them on in. And they say, yeah, okay, okay, I'm a Christian. I can do this. I got this. We're good. And they walk into the temple. Now, when they walk into the temple, you have to understand the marketplace is set up there. Incense is being burned. Idols are being sold. Trinkets, spells, readings, soothsayings. All these pagan things are going on around you. Food is boiling. Sacrifices are being drug off to be buried. So you're walking right into the midst of a pagan environment. And all of a sudden, what am I doing here? What was I thinking? And all of a sudden, that boldness that you saw in the one who had strong confidence, all of a sudden you realize this isn't your confidence. And you sit down, and he's eating. He's taking that steak. He wants the best choice. He's pouring the best of the wine. He's enjoying himself at this feast, and you're, you're eating it. You're like, oh, no, I hope I'm not going to be not a worshiper. And you eat with timidity and fear. You're wondering what people are... Someone's like, hey, that's, that, that's Johnny over there. He was one of us once. And they watch you. Maybe he's joined us. Maybe he's back. Maybe he came to his senses. And now you're wondering, what are they thinking of me? Oh, man, do they see this? They're not seeing Christ in me, are they? This, this is bad. That's the problem. The compulsion was strong because they recognized their strength and full faith confidence. And yet, the compulsion... And that effect of drawing the weak in to participate was not on the basis, here it is, was not on the basis of their faith. It was on the basis of another's faith. Just for all my Presbyterian brethren out there who's just heard me say that. Your child's inclusion to the covenant is not based on your faith, it's based on their faith. That's the problem. Now, there are some important points with this problem that need to be pointed out to you here. Let me do this quickly. We're going to interpret rightly what is actually the problem and what the rebuke actually is dealing with, and we need to understand these things. First of all, we remember it is a right. It is a right for the Christian to eat food offered to idols. It's not a sin. Verse 9, we can see that. Secondly, the confident one is found encouraging the weak unto participation. Now, it's wrong in this scenario, but it's not a wrong concept. We are told in the scripture that we are to, we are to promote others unto righteousness. We are to promote others unto faith. We are to sharpen our brother and sister in sound doctrine. Like, we're, those are things that we want to do. We want to pull the weak, the small, the young into maturity and full confidence, right? So that concept is okay. But guess what's missing in that encouragement to partake? Confident faith. Confident faith. They're just beckoning them to come participate, but they are not securing for them the reality of that person's faith. That's going to be the problem. Thirdly, we see the weak one who eats is said then to be destroyed by this participation. 
Fourthly, we note that the weak is not destroyed because of a variant in the manner of which they participated. They were not eating at a different place in a different way. They were eating the same food right next to the confident Christian. There's nothing that differed in the manner of which they ate and drank of those things offered to the idol. So it's not that one was able to drink unto the glory of God and the other one had to just pound it and he abused it at the table. Right? That's why I said that, that the other issue there cannot be a determining factor. Just because someone can take something that you can do unto God for glory and they take it unto sin, that, that's never a reason for not doing or for doing something. They're not being destroyed because they abused something. And the strong is not being rebuked for participating in the eating of these foods. It's their right. Same for the weak. It was their right. They both had the right. That's not the issue. So why is the confident one being rebuked by Paul in verse 12? It wasn't because of any potential abuse that food may have brought and gluttony to the weak. It wasn't because they were offending the senses of the weak. It wasn't like the weak said, you made me do this. I told you I didn't want to do this and you still made me do this. You're doing it right in front of me so now I have to, you know, now I have to be offended. That, 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 that's not what's going on. It wasn't in the offending of the senses of the weak because he was encouraged or emboldened by the confident one. The sin comes in this. The confident one ate in faith and the weak did not. Therefore, what the weak did, they didn't do because it was forbidden. It wasn't even because it violated their immediate senses or personal conviction or standard. Because they gave in and they were emboldened to do it willingly. It was a sin because the act was not done in faith. And whatever is not done in faith is what, church? It's sin. And so the issue really isn't a matter of those things we've already discussed. The matter was that the weak participated emboldened and encouraged by outside influences. Not by faith. Paul has already argued, I don't care if you eat or don't eat. It's the same argument he gave for marriage. I don't care if you marry or don't marry. It's the same thing with circumcision. I don't care if you're circumcised or not circumcised. Those things don't matter. What matters is that whatever you do, you do in faith unto the glory of God. That's what matters. Listen, Christian liberty doesn't worry about someone's personal standard or someone's feelings. 
or someone's point of view or interpretation. You can't have your life lived like that. Neither is it because you have to anticipate what they might sin with. That's not a reason for doing or not doing. What you have to consider for those who are less confident in the faith is will they then perform it in faith or not? You can do something in faith, maybe they can't. And if you encourage them and beckon them and embolden them to do it in spite of that, that's a sin for you. They aren't fully convinced that this is right for them. They aren't doing this full faith towards God. And therefore, whatever they do is not being done unto the glory of God. They think that they are partly glorifying the idol. They have split allegiances. They have no true confidence in the gospel. And they have not been doing what they've been doing because they've been informed by gospel faith. This is the sin to be found in the abuse of Christian liberty. And so I hope that you can see that Christian liberty has nothing really to do with offending the senses of a personal standard or of anticipating potential sinful abuses of miscellaneous items. But it has everything to do with the exercising of ourselves in faith. This is true also for the confident one. His faith cannot be used to pressure or encourage activity that cannot be pursued in faith. So listen, if you find yourself as an insecure person in a particular issue or object or matter that will affect your faith, if you are going to abstain or you don't think it's right for you to do so, I bless you in that. I encourage you to hold to that. You're doing that as a discipline for your faith. Praise the Lord for that. But just make sure you don't make that an oppressive standard for your brother who can live in that unto the glory of God in full faith. You can be a stumbling block in that sense. You can be a faith stubber. We we believe that the reason Paul's addressing this is because those who were confident in faith are complaining to Paul about the others. Why are we having to live our life because these folks can't get their act together spiritually? Do we not have full reign in Christ? Are we not joint heirs with him? Right? Are all things ours, Paul? You just said they were all things were ours. You said all things are legal for us. All things are permissible. Is that true? Then why are we being drugged down and oppressed by the wounded conscience of someone who does not see the full potential of their gospel faith? Paul says, you're right. You're right. So if you are in the weaker stance on a particular issue, make sure you do not bring your brother or sister down. But also, if you are the confident one, do not pressure or encourage or force a particular direction of participation if you are aware of the fact that they cannot do that on their own in faith towards God. So if the faith of the confident cannot be matched by another brother or sister in Christ, then the confident one should never do that action if it will be the cause of another's faith stubbing. The drive of this course of action is undefiled love. These confident ones are impatient, they're frustrated. So what does Paul do? He reminds them, listen, everything that you do, everything you don't do, 
you do it in the confines of love. Because though you have knowledge, your knowledge can be used as sin. Your knowledge is going to be used to puff yourself up, which apparently it started to do because they were complaining. But rather, what you need to do is to hold that knowledge, possess that knowledge the way you ought to, in love. Because if you will have that knowledge and you'll keep that knowledge in the confines of love, then you will see faith built up. Now, those who are confident in the faith, my suggestion is we want to see those who are weaker in the faith to come up. We want them to be strengthened in their faith in God and confidence in the gospel's power. We want them to be brought up into maturity, to be filled up with Christ. And so what we have to do is we have to sometimes remember that love prevails over our personal position and knowledge so that we all might have unity in the knowledge of God. If you refuse to hold your knowledge in love, it may be that the weaker knowledge is never developed. But if you can suppress your knowledge and confine it in love, then that knowledge that is issued out in love may actually be what is used to build up that individual in faith. And guess what? Eventually they might have that moment where they're like, ah, I get it. I see what you're saying. They are nothing. God is all in all. Pass me the steak or the bacon. Our spiritual knowledge is tempered by love. And we ought not to tempt the weaker Christian to run ahead of his conscience. Those who love God are known by God. That is, they are identified by godliness. And therefore, since God is love, guess what we must do to one another? We must love. This often means that we will give ourselves up for the sake of another, and in this way we find that love is successful in building up faith. This is the word that the Apostle Paul has concerning Christian liberty, at least at this point in chapter 8. So remember, if, if a weak brother comes to you and tries to argue that the reason why you should or should not do something is because of their personal standard, you have to remind them, listen, I'm going to love you, and I'm trying to, I'll try to be offensive to you in any way, but I cannot have my life lived because of, of your weakness, right, of, of your insecurity. And also, just because someone might take something and sin with it that you can use unto God's glory doesn't mean that you have to then put it away just because of that potential. Yet, love might demand in certain scenarios that you willingly do not pursue certain things because you recognize it will not build up. It may only inflame and encourage an activity that is not done in faith. And let me tell you, gluttony of anything is not a faith, right? So if someone cannot handle their beverage without debauchery, then it cannot be pursued in faith. We have to recognize that. And there is where the mature become discerning and we become helpful and love must win. That's right. In this instance, love must win over your particular knowledge. Let's pray.